Hi everyone and welcome to the new episode of the Women in Economics Initiative podcast. This is the second episode of a new podcast series on the econ job market. Our goal is to collect valuable information about the job market, tips on how to ace it and finally experience from previous successful candidates. I'm Jelena, coordinator of the events team at WE and your host this year. Today I am joined by Paul Hufe, assistant professor at the University of Bristol. Paul's research interests lie at the intersection of public, labor and normative economics. In this episode, we will discuss what the econ job market looks like from a recruiting department's perspective and how to excel in communication with employers and during the job interview. So, hello, Paul. I'm so happy to have you as my guest today. Welcome. Hi, Elena. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So let us start and maybe our audience can get to know you a bit better. If you tell us your academic story and guide us through your educational path until your current job position. Sure. Yeah, as, as you already said, like um, now I'm an economist. I work mostly on inequality, inequality of opportunity and skill formation. However, I think my trajectory was not is not representative for a standard economist. So um, after school, I have to admit I was quite lost. So I didn't know what to do. I started studying business actually, and also completed a business degree. However, I always thought that it was not as intellectually stimulating as I hoped. And basically then I decided to do a master's in philosophy and economics, which kind of like also then set kind of like the stage for my later research interests, which are always informed also by normative reasoning. So after the master's, basically, um, I was lost again. And um, <laughs> what did I do? I basically started working, started working for the UN for one year, but also felt that after one year in the bureaucracy of the UN that <laughs> I that I wasn't done with my education yet. So I started looking into PhD programs and in view of my education or my prior experience in philosophy and economics, I kind of like started looking into interdisciplinary programs where I could kind of like combine my two research interests. However, was not very successful because basically always this feedback that I have gotten is that you first have to master one subject perfectly before you can kind of like expand into different directions. But luckily enough, I found a supervisor in Mannheim who was very willing also to let me work on normative uh, topics such that I can could basically have those two elements that were important for me within an econ um, PhD program. Started my PhD in Mannheim, my supervisor moved, uh, moved in between to another position in Munich, so I ended up finishing my PhD in Munich. Went on the market and yes, as you said, um, now I'm in Bristol and I'm very happy here. <laughs> So happy to hear that and thank you for sharing your path. I always love listening to those stories because uh, when we look at where people end, we just look at the outcome, the, the final destination. What's always interesting for me is to look at the bumpy road and see yeah. that it was not easy for anyone, even if it looks like, oh, they just nailed it and yeah, lucky no. them. So it's, it was... <laughs> it's bumpy for the most of us. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it was just a bit of luck, but uh, in the end, it was lots of hard work and reflection until you uh, figured out what, what you like, what you enjoy. And I'm super grateful that we actually have you in academia. Uh, I have to share uh, with the audience that I had the opportunity to work uh, with Paul while he was back in Munich and that... This really also helped me a lot to decide to pursue my PhD. 
Happy to hear that. <laughs> that it was not just a discouragement, but also kind of like had a positive spillover no, effect. No, 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 no. Indeed, indeed. Um, from you, I learned that it can be lots of fun and that you can pursue things that, that you're interested in and that uh, someone assigns you to do. So that was a source of inspiration for me, definitely. Great. But let I, us move back to... We can maybe... also stop here. I think it cannot get any better for me. <laughs> 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 awesome then then i'm happy i'm happy that uh, in the end this conversation was was nice for you as well uh, but maybe we can move uh, back to the job market topic and uh, you agreed to tell us a bit how this process looks like from the view of department that's recruiting candidates in specific year. So all we know at the moment is lots of tips that we give to candidates, how they should apply. But let us look at the other perspective and maybe there we could also find something that's interesting and more source of tips for people who are applying for jobs. So maybe just uh, like in terms of background, so I was in the market, um, so in the first Corona market, uh, basically, and um, which was, of course, very special for <laughs> on yes. the candidate perspective, but also on the department perspective. And um, then I basically found finally my job here in Bristol and I thought I was done with the job market. But then um, two months into the job, I was approached by our head of school, whether I want to actually sit at the other side of the table uh, in the next hiring cycle. So I basically had everything back to back. And in that <laughs> sense, it was quite an ex uh, interesting experience also kind of like to have like those two, two different perspectives, both the hiring pers perspective and the candidate uh, perspective in such a short period of time. I think like in view or against this backdrop, I think what was really startling for me um, coming from the candidate perspective is also just to see how much work it is on the department side. Because of course, I mean, every candidate is absolutely right in being overwhelmed by this process and mm. constantly being on the spot and constantly being tested and so forth. But I have to say that um, the job for the department and being on a recruitment uh, committee can be almost as stressful. <laughs> um, okay. Not, not. I mean, uh, it's still less stressful than uh, than for the candidate, but it's definitely also a big job. So I think, like, obviously, everything that I will say now is kind of like um, not representative for any other department in Europe. But it's basically just an insight and and how the, things are being done here in Bristol. And to caveat it even further, it's probably not even re representative for how things are being done here in Bristol because I was especially assigned to hiring or kind of like the recruitment committee that covered the side of applied economics here in Bristol. So maybe just in terms of background, so, so what we are doing, um, what we did last year and what we are also doing this year is that we had kind of like an open field job, job advert so kind of like we were open to hiring people in all different fields and that of course then leads that uh, first of all that you get a massive amount of applications so at stage one so basically now beginning of november end of october like the ad goes out then the um, applications are coming in and then for example last year we received 630 applications here in bristol for those so it's kind of like it's a big pool of information that is all of a sudden flowing onto your desk in the applied group, we processed 380 of those applications. So if you're hiring and applied, if you're on the market and applied, you're basically in a big pool of applicants because there's just so many people who work in these fields. So here in Bristol, basically, the job market is organized along the research groups that we have. So we basically have a research group in metrics, we have a research group in applied economics, we have a research group in macro and in micro theory. And along those lines, basically, we also organize the market. 
Um, so what I've said, like we, we basically received those uh, 600 uh, something applications based on the fields that people are then basically ticking on um, Econ Drop Market. We assign them to the different desks and then you basically start processing. As I said, we ended up with 380 that kind of like fit the, <laughs> the broad description of light economics. And then basically we started with something that we call pre-screening. So somehow you kind of like want to weed out the applications, boiling down the number to something that is more manageable. So how that looks like is basically in our case, we had four people from the applied group that were screening all applications, all 380, along the lines of two main dimensions, namely, first of all, the quality of the portfolio. So are you doing great research? Is your research actually a good fit for our department and so forth? And then, however, also on a second criterion, basically, like how likely is it actually that you would join Bristol or the department to which you are applying, conditional on that an offer would be made to you. So I think like in terms of um, um, the package that you're sending in, I mean, you have basically your job market paper, your other papers, you have your CV, you have your recommendation letters, you have your cover letter, your diversity statement, teaching statement, and so forth. I think for the quality dimension, um, what we especially paid attention to is, of course, your CV. It's just kind of like a brief overview of kind of like your achievements, who you are. Probably it also gives an indication of where you want to go in view of projects that you're currently working on. Then, of course, also the recommendation letters. So what are your supervisors telling us about the quality of your work? And then kind of like you also have a brief overview of the job market paper, reading the abstract, reading the intro. I mean, this is basically why people are always telling you throughout the job market, really have to polish your intro. But this is kind of like the first thing that people look at when they look at your package. For the second criterion, so the likelihood of actually coming to the place that you're applying, I think like the cover letter carries a lot of importance, right? I mean, you do amazing research. But most of the departments, they're also aware of their position where they are in comparison to their Harvards and MITs of this world. So basically, if you're coming in with, uh, I don't know, with an amazing CV, amazing research, you have to be aware of the fact that you might be considered out of reach for, for many departments. And I think like if you nevertheless think like, oh, I definitely want to go to, I don't know, Amsterdam, Oslo or... I don't know, Milan, for whatever reason, then just use the cover letter to kind of like provide a signal that is beyond kind of like the generic statements that, that are often found in, in cover So I think that is an appropriate place where you can make these kind of statements. Another thing that you should do to be considered out of reach for departments where you definitely want to go is also like to talk to your supervisor because we also get, usually the recruitment committee gets a lot of signals um, supervisors saying like, listen, I have this amazing candidate and he would be a great fit for the department. And on top of that, there are a couple of reasons why this person actually has a strong interest in joining you. So in that sense, just be active in the, uh, in the communication also with your supervisors such that they can make sure that you're actually on the map for uh, the departments where you definitely want to go. So yeah, so what we did is that each application package was screened along those two dimensions by two people of the of the department. So we had four people involved in the process in order to ease a little bit the workload. We have two people looking at each package such that in the end, each of us had kind of like 190 applications that they went through in the initial pre-screen. And this is basically a process that happens now in November. So it's starting now and it's going on until basically the close of the applications end of November. Yeah, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, I think we'll need it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of stamina. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Do we have something that comes next? 
Yes, definitely. I mean, there's an outcome from this pre-screening process, which we call here kind of like a long list. So basically, we started off with 630. Um, we came down to 380 that kind of like were applied. And then based on the outcome of this uh, initial pre-screening process, we boiled it down to 40 applications that went into kind of like a more thorough wedding of the, of the candidates. So more thorough wedding um, basically means in the case of Bristol that um, we looked then at the candidates, looked at the field in which they're working. And then we involve basically the larger department in, in the sense saying, uh, in the sense of like, I don't know, if someone is uh, working on migration, I would go to my colleague Toman and say, listen, Toman, we have, we have this guy working on migration. Would you be willing to read job market paper and kind of like provide like a short referee report in terms of like what you think of the work, what is the quality of the research paper and so forth. So, and we basically go a little bit deeper than just how well the introduction is mm -hmm. written and how interesting are things, but really <laughs> kind of like testing the substance of the job market paper a little further. Out of that, basically, last year at least, we produced um, 26 candidates that found their way on the short list of applied people that made it to the next round. So we're already kind of like getting into this kind of like a dimension of number of applications that is more manageable. The shortlist that we then have is kind of like so far like everything was very much isolated right but then we're basically getting into a into a period where basically now each desk so the applied desk uh, um, the the macro desk the micro field redesk and the metrics desk basically they have their own shortlists mm -hmm. and now everybody's kind of like gathering around a table and i don't know i mean if each of us brings like 25 applications we still have 100 people in there Yep. And then it's kind of then you kind of like a little bit the haggling starts among the different groups and where also the strategic priorities kind of like of the school come in a little bit further, right? And in a sense, we started with open field, but then you have to kind of like make a decision how many interview slots are we actually allocating to the different groups because um, you just cannot uh, interview 100 people. So last year, we were quite successful in our negotiations <laughs> in the applied <laughs> group. So we actually managed to place, I think, uh, 24 people out of the the applied group where we managed to allocate them to interviews. But once kind of like this shortlist is produced and the department has agreed like who to interview, I think then at least on the department side, it's kind of like a short period of relief. So the interview invitations are being sent out uh, beginning of uh, December. The interviews themselves are kind of like mid-December. Um, so this year it's going to be 12th, 13th and 14th of December. So in that sense, uh, you have like a short break where you don't have to look at application uh, packages, where you don't have to think about the CVs of people and so forth, but um, can really take a short break before then entering into this also very intense phase of the interviews themselves. How many interviews per day do you have? It depends a little bit on how it is organized. So last year what happened is basically that we ran two desks throughout the entire European job market. So we basically matched the applied group with metrics and IO. And on this desk, we had the 24 people from the applied group plus 20 people from the metrics IO. So we had like 44 interviews in three days, which is, <laughs> which is basically just means uh, just to accommodate kind of like also um, people who are dialing in from the US and so forth, you have very long days. So we usually start at 7.30 in the morning interviewing. Then each interview is like half an hour. We organized it in a way that after one hour, we had half an hour break just to reset and to get ready for the next candidate coming in. 
and this basically went on until seven uh, seven o'clock at night and so this is kind of like how those uh, three days look like and um yeah it's certainly very intense uh, I, I i cannot claim that you sleep very well at night after hearing like <laughs> all the different even as a recruiter yeah exactly it's uh, it's a uh, it's a sleep deprivation on both sides i would say <laughs> no and i think like this is it's very important to keep in mind uh, on the candidate side right um just i mean i suppose like a lot of your supervisors um are already telling you you have to be kind of like you have to leave a mark in those ha in this half an hour and just if you think about it uh, the fact that you have um, so many interviews during a day, it illustrates why this is the case, because in the end, I mean, we try to be thorough in terms of taking notes in terms of kind of like just making sure that we retain all the information that's relevant to the particular candidate. But then, of course, there's always like the non-tangible side, right? So like what the interpersonal side of, of this, especially when it's on Zoom, when it's when there's a screen between the two people, um, I think uh, you really have to be out there and try to leave a mark also in terms of the interpersonal communication, such that people attach kind of like a, a positive memory when they think about you as the candidate. Can you tell us, Paul, are these interviews always online? No, I think that is so like the the Corona market that I've been in was the first one where there was a transition towards online interviews. Before that, the European job market is attached to the, to the winter meeting of the Econometric Society. And then um, what has been the case previously is basically that then you would have like the conference and then you would have, you would go to hotels and uh, meeting rooms and so forth in order to have those interviews. But this year there has been a conscious decision. I don't know to what extent it was driven by uncertainty, what would happen kind of like with the pandemic or whatever. It was actually a conscious decision to, to keep it online. I personally think it's a great idea to have it online because it's, I mean, um, if you think about how stressful the process is for both sides, I, I just like to sleep in my own bed. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this is kind of like my comfort zone and uh, kind of like, um, and you kind of like have your own rhythm, right? I mean, you as a candidate, I would kind of like, um, I would fix my coffee in the morning. I would have like all my usual stuff, like all my, the things that would uh, get me kind of like in my, in my comfort zone. And then I could go out and try the best that I could for the interviews. And of course, you don't have like this uncertainty also in terms of like finding the hotel room, finding kind of like the meeting room where you're supposed to meet people and so forth. So I think it's much more relaxed to have it um, to have it online, although there's a little bit of a lack of the interpersonal touch. But if it was up to me, I would definitely advocate for keeping them online also in the future, because also for climate reasons, it's just a little bit over the board uh, to kind of like uh, fly people all over the globe just to have like those half hour encounters. Indeed. So now people are interviewed and what happens next? How do you find who is the candidate? So basically what happens in the interviews for us was basically we had kind of like a core interview team, which was basically part of the recruitment team. And then they were also accompanied by a field expert. So in our case, we always tried to have the person who really read the job market paper in very great detail also in the interview, such that basically in the, in the interviews, you would always have kind of like an expert who would be able to test the candidate on the contentious issues of the paper a little further. 
So in that sense, we try to instill strong comparability across candidates by having like a core of an interview team, but then also bringing in those external perspective of those field experts. And again, kind of like we always elicited the short um, feedback or kind of like a short written or verbal feedback on the candidate and so forth from those experts. And then it's hard to describe um, how this process basically goes. We all have our notes. We compare our notes. Last year, actually, we were in the lucky position that we were super consistent in terms of our candidate evaluation. So I think like we all kind of like uh, what we did is that we, like after the finish of the of the interviews, we took one day break and where everyone went into their own room, into their own office. And then we produced kind of like a ranking across the um, 45 candidates that we had seen. There was actually a strong congruence in the rankings that we produced. So there was not a lot of haggling then at our desk in terms of like who were the best people. We very quickly came up with a, a kind of like the top 10 candidates where we said like those are the guys that were actually flying out. I don't know. I mean, let's see what happens this year. <laughs> but this was just like a, a lucky draw. But let's hope for the best because it's very hard really to, to engage in those conversations, especially like when you're comparing people across fields, right? It's very hard to compare kind of like a person who is working working on I.O. with a person who, who works on education, right? And um, there you always get into difficult conversations when making these type of comparisons. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. And um, so we had our list and then again, a little bit of haggling starts, right? And you have basically two desks that are then coming together and they have to uh, kind of like produce a list of candidates that are actually being flown out. I think there we had uh, more difficult conversations, <laughs> Not, uh, but in the end, I think it was still reasonably smooth in terms of the process, such that in the end, we ended up having um, seven or eight candidates that were flown out for the applied group. So basically, we boiled down again to 25% uh, to from the initial interview list based on the interview that we had. So in Bristol in total, I think we hired seven people last year. We hired two, one person in I.O., one person in metrics, uh, one person which is, fits more like the applied camp. Who else did we hire? Uh, we hired uh, two theorists and uh, am I forgetting someone? So if someone from Bristol is listening in right now, uh, please <laughs> forgive me. So, But uh, I think we hired seven people in total. And exactly. And um, one was basically a candidate um, that was more associated with the applied group. Awesome. Wow. I mean... If we were to go into details when it comes to flyouts, I think that's a whole another story, maybe topic for a completely separate episode. But I think that this already gives people a nice overview of how long and systematic whole process is. So lots of people are involved, lots of energy, and it just takes lots of time. Wow. I, I was not aware of all the steps, I have to admit. And um, now I'm more convinced that people really make sure that they know who they are hiring. And <laughs> you would think so, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, with all the yeah. energy that goes in there. But uh, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe just an anecdote. Um, I mean, we are always being told that there's a lot of randomness in the process and we try to be as systematic as we can, right? I mean, like uh, hiring people is really like one of the strategic um, decisions for the department because in the end, these are kind of like long-term colleagues, potentially depending on the position. But so there's really a strong interest on the side of departments really also to get the best fit of candidates for the, for the respective department. 
However, there's nevertheless a lot of randomness that you just cannot get rid of, right? And that is, I think, like also why people are always telling you kind of like stay relaxed throughout the market. This is not about you. This is not about uh, kind of like the quality of the research. There's so many, there's so many, not there's so much noise in the process still, in spite of the, all those efforts that um, some things you cannot just predict. So, and just to give an anecdote that that should bring this point home. So when we were like at the shortlist last year, so we basically already had the list of people that we would want to have for our interviews. I basically bumped on my way to the coffee machine in the department. I bumped into a colleague of mine and then uh, this person was asking me, so is uh, person XYZ actually on your list? And I'm like, oh, is this person in the market? I haven't seen her, but we should have seen her, right? And so we went back to our files and then we realized that this person was just filtered out because there was kind of like a hiccup in the preferences that um, that were given on uh, Econ Job Market. So we basically screened this application <laughs> individually again, uh, screened the Job Market paper again and brought her basically on the shortlist. And in the end, this is the person that we hired for the <laughs> applied group. Wow. So in that sense, like if I wouldn't have bumped into my colleague on this particular day, kind of like uh, on my way to the coffee machine, this would have have not happened and it's not like there's no um, bad intentions or whatever but there are just like so many things that can go wrong in the process um, in our case if people are kind of like i don't know if one of your evaluators has a grumpy day and kind of like is stressed or whatever and gives you a little bit like a, a worse evaluation mm. then then uh, he or she would have done like on another day this can already be could be the end of the process. It shouldn't be, but I mean, those things just happen. So um, there is still a lot of noise in the process. <laughs> I get it. So I would say may take away for candidates, your worth is not equal to the worth of your job market paper. So there are lots of lots of things that happen in the meantime. Yeah. As you say, this was pure luck and... In the end, it turned out well. I mean, it was not just pure luck because it's a great candidate Indeed. that we had Indeed. in the end. Indeed, I mean, and like how this uh, greatness of candidates actually gets fed into the process. There is yes. kind of like a yes. certain randomness involved. Indeed, yeah. indeed. So at least a small portion of luck for every candidate exactly. that's on the market this year. Uh, that's what what I wish for them. Wow. I mean, this was. Even tiring just to listen. I can only imagine how it looks like in in uh, when when the process is is taking place. Wow! I'm now I'm really impressed, and I think that I'm I will be looking at econ job market with uh, different eyes yeah. from from now on. Thank you for that, Paul. But it also seems that when you mentioned try to make impact when you're having those thirty minute interviews, when you communicate with your employers. So it seems that your communication skills are indeed important. And based on your experience so far, both as a candidate and as a recruiter, can you share some tips with us? So what people should definitely do or what people should definitely, definitely avoid? Yeah, I think it comes kind of like to, I don't know, probably it's not so much different to any type of professional communication that you should have, right? So you shouldn't renege on the promises that you make. You should kind of like uh, show appreciation for the efforts that are being made also on the, uh, also on the other side. I think like that, that those are kind of like two guiding thoughts that you should always have when, I don't know, communicating either in the interviews or communicating um, also via emails when kind of like trying to arrange things with your future employers. I think that gets especially important then later on to the flyout stage uh, when we move to the flyout stage because then basically, I mean, 
then there's a lot of involvement on the department side. So you should always think, for example, like when it comes to a flyout, there at least, at least in the case of Bristol, there are 10 people of the department who are going to meet with you during the day. There's one person or there's the administrative staff kind of like in, uh, involved in arranging your travels, finding accommodation and so forth. So basically something that you definitely should not do is kind of like always go back and forth in terms of like when you would be available for your flyout and when not, right? I mean, you will piss off a lot of people by that. It's <laughs> just not well perceived. Um, I mean, we all understand that it's a super busy time and so forth, but it's it's a busy time for everyone. So let's try to kind of like be appreciative for all the efforts that we're making on both sides and yeah, just treat each other consciously. And I think everything is fine. I think there's no... There's no magic uh, to this entire process of communication except for kind of like being a decent human being, I would say. <laughs> yes, yes. I think this was also very insightful and uh, hopefully candidates will behave accordingly. So that was about communicating when uh, you will be on interviews. At this moment, still Zoom interviews. Then also when you should arrange your flyout. But when you meet those people in person, What is something that somehow stands out? So let me ask it a bit differently. So is it only that you're interested in the research person does? So in a sense, what's the quality of a person? Or when you're looking to hire someone, you're also looking whether you would like to work with someone? Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> okay. um, so... Um... So for us, and again, this might be Bristol specific, but probably it's not so different across different departments. Of course, I mean, research is super important, but I mean, virtually like every conversation that I had with my, with my colleagues on the recruitment committee, like this idea of, is this a good colleague? Is that someone I kind of like want to bump in when I go to the coffee machine? Is that someone who's approachable for me if I have a question on the field that this specific person is an expert in and so forth? They play a great role. And I think like this is something you can signal that definitely already in the interviews, right? I mean, kind of like the communication with your future employer is virtually zero until you meet them in the in the interviews. But this is when you can bring those points home. So, for example, showing an interest into the department, right? This is the first one. I know, for example, I mean... Oftentimes when we asked in the interviews, I don't know, a standard question that you could face is like, why do you want to come to Bristol or you can replace Bristol with any other department that you're striving for? And then one definitely has to try to be not just generic, right? You, you, not just like, oh, I know, I mean, there are great researchers working on applied economics, blah, blah, blah. This is something that, I mean, this is something that describes like... 50 departments in Europe, right? Try to be more specific. Is there a researcher at the department whose work you find super interesting? And um, is there someone who you would collaborate with? Or I don't know, give specific examples of why you actually think you are a great fit for the department and why you think like this department would be a great fit for you. If you don't give the signals, then you're basically what the recruiter side would probably think is like, oh, this person doesn't give a damn, <laughs> at least about that. So that the chance of getting this person for us, even if the research is great, is probably not so large. I think it's also important to show, and that goes a little bit beyond the job market paper, to show really drive for the research that you're doing. So basically, um, I mean, of course, for the interviews, um, you have to be absolutely on top in terms of your job market spiel. You have to be kind of like on top of the details of your job market paper, but also try to think a little bit like um, 
in a longer run perspective. So try So I had the impression oftentimes, or not oftentimes, but sometimes candidates struggle to convey their view of the bigger picture, right? So, and this is, but this is something super important, right? I mean, you're not just being hired for your job market paper, but you're going to be a colleague for a couple of years and you're not just going to be working on the job market paper, but you need to kind of like give an indication of who you are and who you're striving to be as a researcher. And that is kind of like a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit more than just giving a great impression of current research, which, which is the job market paper. Something that that I faced as a candidate is that also um, that people can expect. But uh, for example, I was once asked in an interview like how a usual workday looks like for me. So I assume <laughs> this question was kind of like uh, um, targeted at uh, finding out whether I'm also a real person or whether I just uh, sit in my office uh, all day long without any interaction. So you should also be prepared to see that you're an interesting person to have around and that people would actually have fun engaging with and i think one shouldn't neglect that is when going to the interviews awesome i mean this was super insightful especially i liked the previous thing that you've said so people should really reflect on why they're doing that and why they want to pursue their academic careers i mean if, if you don't know answer to that question then you're probably not, not applying to the right jobs potentially i mean it's a it's a, it's a it's a balance right um i mean of course i mean we should also be mindful that of course research is not everything but in the end i mean if we look at the practice of this job it is very time consuming so i, I think one should be able to convey the idea that one is pursuing this type of job for the right reason Indeed. Awesome. This was such an insightful conversation. Maybe we can round it up and you can give us one last tip that you would like every candidate to know this year. <laughs> um, I think, it, 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 yeah, if something that I have said previously was useful, the next statement is going to be completely not useful um, <laughs> because it's uh, hard to put that in practice but with all the stress that is kind of like attached to this phase of the academic career just try to be as relaxed as possible try to kind of like find the little things in life that get you into your comfort zone whether this is going for a run in the morning going out for a cafe with your friends or you name it every one of us has those little things that make them feel at home and kind of like um, comfortable in their own skin and I think this is important, first of all, for the reasons that we have discussed, that there's so much randomness that, you, that it's just not under your control. And second of all, it also transpires when you get into an interview. So, for example, like, uh, I don't know, if you enter um, the room and uh, like the Zoom room and you feel at one with yourself, basically, even through the screen, people will see that. And that goes then back to the interpersonal things that we have discussed, kind of like this is something that sticks with people and that is already going beyond kind of like just the um, academic credentials that are put down in your job market paper and on your CV and so forth. So try to not to get holed up in, in this whole process, but find kind of like your little distractions that, um, that will help you and make you more productive also throughout this process. So try to enjoy the ride, despite everything that we have discussed in the, in the past 40 minutes. So the last thing that I would like to add to, to this one is something super wise that I've heard from my mentor. And that is keep in mind when you're on the job market that that's one point in your career when everyone will genuinely be interested in you, in who you are and what's your research about. So 
maybe look from that positive side because people indeed want to get to know you and get to know your research. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this is the great thing that I actually haven't mentioned, right? But if I look back at my time as a candidate, I mean, sometimes I was then basically seeing kind of like um, who, uh, who would interview me and who I would meet throughout my flyouts. And I mean, excuse my French, but I was sometimes like almost shitting my pants because I was so kind of like, oh my God, <laughs> what is this person going to think of me? But there's so many nice and genuine people out there who really show an interest into you as a person and into your research. And this is kind of like really something it can be a big push also in terms of like, okay, this is something that, I mean, it's not completely stupid that I've done, right? Or this is not completely stupid what I'm thinking about. So it can be kind of like also super motivating and one should definitely try to enjoy those moments um, as much as one can. Amazing. So dear people who are applying to the job market this year, please try to enjoy. Paul, thank you so much for this conversation. It was even more exciting than I could anticipate. I've learned so much and i hope that it will be useful for other people who will be listening to it thank you so much for taking time and sharing all your experience both personal and from the other side professional experience i i really appreciate it thanks for having me it was a great pleasure and for all the candidates out there best of luck it's going to be intense but it's also going to be a lot of fun <laughs> <laughs> again thanks a lot and thanks to everyone who joined to listen to this episode hopefully it will be useful to you and you'll be able to draw some nice conclusions and implement some of the tips paul has shared with us today and uh, bear with us because i will continue recording some new episodes on how to ace econ job market. Thanks a lot and bye-bye. The views expressed in WE podcasts are those of the interviewers and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinion of the organization, its partners, other members, or any other affiliated people and organizations. We'd also like to thank Maddie Stevenson for writing and recording our original theme song. For anyone who would like to learn more about the Women in Economics Initiative, please find us online as well as on most social media channels.